Good afternoon. It's Friday the 23rd of September 2022, a few minutes after one o'clock. Apologize for the late starting. Welcome to UK Call News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, we've got Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the program, Patrick. All right. Thank you, Mike. Um, okay, let's uh, let's get straight on then with, uh, well, the government has decided uh, to release its uh, fantastic cut tax and spend deal. Uh, this is going to save us all from uh, very unpleasant cost of living rises, they claim. Um, let's just have a, a quick listen to uh, Quasi Quarteng uh, this morning. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And... Uh... Mr. Speaker, let me start directly with the issue most worrying the British people today, the cost of energy. People will have seen the horrors of Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine. They will have heard reports that their already expensive energy bills could reach as high as £6,500 next year. Mr. Speaker, we were never going to let this happen. My right honourable friend, the Prime Minister has acted with great speed to announce one of the most significant interventions the British state has ever made. We're taking three steps to support families and businesses with the cost of energy. Firstly, to help households, the energy price guarantee will limit the unit price that consumers pay for electricity and gas. This means that for the next two years, the typical annual household bill will be £2,500. Secondly, as well as helping people, we need to support the businesses who employ them. The energy bill relief scheme will reduce wholesale gas and electricity prices for all UK businesses, charities and the public sector, such as schools and hospitals. And the third thing that he announced was a further bailout of the energy companies, which he claimed were sustainable, they were functional uh, under normal circumstances and so on. But Patrick, uh, just wanted to get your brief comment on this before we go into the detail. Uh, they insist on banging this drum, Putin, Putin, Putin. Yeah, not a minute goes by that this uh, scapegoat gets inserted uh, whenever we talk about the economy or the sort of the hijacking of people's uh, savings and the uh, total decimation of the of the currency uh, with regards to inflation. It's all Russia, Russia, Russia. Nobody's talking about the actual policies that were intentionally put into place by this government. Uh, the same can be said uh, in the United States and in the European Union as well. Meanwhile, they're just gaslighting the population to sort of think that uh, somehow Putin is responsible for all of their woes. It's like the most disingenuous, disingenuous uh, uh, effort, and it just seems to never end. Uh, well, indeed, and we'll, we'll, the, the disingenuousness of it all will uh, become apparent as we go through the news programme here. But let's, uh, let's have a look at the detail of this then. So what was announced this morning? Uh, a cut in the basic rate of income tax to 19% from next April. Uh, 45% uh, higher rate of income tax is going to be abolished. So there'll only be a single higher rate of income tax, which will be 40% from April next year. Uh, there'll be a rise. Uh, sorry, the, the rise in national insurance that was planned uh, has been scrapped. Uh, the new health and social care levy, uh, the extra tax that was going to pay for the National Health Service, will not be introduced. Uh, the rise in corporation tax has been scrapped. Uh, the rules which limited bankers' bonuses, as we talked about on Wednesday's programme, uh, is going to be scrapped. Uh, and finally, uh, on this list, uh, planned increases for duty on beer, cider, wine and spirits have been cancelled. So uh, while all those uh, bankers are getting much more money, uh, then, uh, well, they can buy much more beer. So that's fantastic stuff. Now let's look at the costs. Uh, total cost for energy package for the energy part of this is expected to be £60 billion for the six months from October. Um, so the if that's for six months and this is lasting for two years and bearing in mind the peak of the price rises was supposed to be in the third quarter of next year. Well, uh, that uh, suggests that the 150 billion pound total cost of this energy package is gonna be significantly shy of the mark. Uh, and then uh, the cost of the tax cuts is expected to be a further 45 billion pounds. Well, of course, yesterday, the Bank of England uh, followed the Fed from last week uh, by increasing 
are putting another half percent on uh, interest rates to deal with inflation. This is going to deal with inflation. So interest rates uh, have increased to 2.25%, while inflation is still somewhere around the 9-10% mark, which means really a negative interest rate of around minus 7%. But let's not worry about that. Uh, the vote was 5-4 to four in favour of this. Uh, some people the, of the four, a couple of them were hoping for a 0.75% raise, uh, and a couple were hoping for a 0.25% raise. Uh, but in the meantime, what they also announced yesterday was that they were going to decrease the asset purchase program. This is quantitative easing by £80 billion. Pounds. So at the time that the government is going to uh, spend, uh, borrow and spend much more money uh, for this, what they've described this morning, uh, they're cutting back the asset purchase program. Well, uh, we will see what effect that has in on the long term. Um, now, Let's uh, move on to this because Quasi Quartang there was saying, uh, you know, that the cap is on the unit uh, cost of energy, and that was going to result in a two and a half thousand pound cap on the cost for the average household. Uh, there's still quite a lot of confusion out there about how this works um, because the Mail headline this morning, amongst others, households being sent letters from Eon, one of the big energy companies, saying that their energy bills are going to rise from 180 pounds to 458 pounds a month. Uh, despite the price cap uh, after Liz Trust insisted soaring bills were a price worth paying to fight against Russia. And the key point here is that, uh, of course, it's all depend on, dependent on energy usage. If you use more energy, you're going to pay more. The cap is not, the £2,500 is not a, a limit that everybody pays. Uh, it's the per unit cost that is the limit. Uh, now, Quasi Quartang uh, announced one other thing that I thought was of note. Today, uh, let's just have a brief listen to this. The time it takes to get consent for nationally significant projects is getting slower, not quicker. While, while, Mr. Speaker, our international competitors forge ahead, we have to end this. We can announce that in the coming months, we will bring forward a new bill to unpack, unpick the complex patchwork of planning restrictions and EU-derived laws that constrain our, our growth. We will. So, uh, Patrick, he's going to bring in uh, new legislation to lift the restrictions on planning uh, laws for infrastructure projects. And the suggestion is, you know, this is going to be great for uh, rail and other things. But I suspect that the, what, this is really about two things. First of all, uh, 5G rollout, uh, which is still getting a lot of pushback locally uh, on planning. And the other thing is fracking. Now, there's some discussion about whether uh, fracking is a realistic proposal by, uh, by the, uh, the, the government, because on one hand, uh, we've got people very keen to see that uh, progress. On the other hand, we've seen uh, articles, uh, and thanks to Joe Boyd for pointing me in this, uh, articles from one of the founders of Quadrilla, for example, saying that really fracking is a no-go for the UK because of the geology. These are the points that uh, Ian Crane was making on fracking nightmare and so, so on. But I think uh, mainly it's the 5G networks that are of the biggest concern here, and they want to make sure that uh, permitted development is really the, the, the policy for that uh, network rollout. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the big piece, uh, the big piece there to me is uh, fracking, and that is now being considered. You can hear it in the rhetoric uh, from Liz Truss. It's, it's being considered as a sort of a national uh, security issue, you know, or national interest or national security interest, uh, energy security, energy security. You start hearing this banging on and on. We must not be held hostage by Vladimir Putin. Uh, so therefore we need to frack, uh, in the UK. And so they're talking about building this infrastructure out as we spoke last uh, Friday on this program. Um, don't be fooled, uh, that the development for hydraulic fracturing, uh, in the UK um, is not really going to be to benefit the domestic um, energy markets. Um, they're going to sell, uh, more likely, they're going to sell it to the highest uh, bidder internationally. So it's it's going to more likely get piped under the English Channel and off to Europe, uh, to Belgium or to whoever. Yes. Okay. Okay. Like We are going to uh, say, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You could pick something up at the uh, UK column shop, uh, but please do share uh, material that you find on the various platforms uh, as far and wide as you possibly can. Uh, and Patrick, uh, quick advertisement for 
the Freed Assange Human Chain surround Parliament on the 1st of October, uh, sorry, at 1 p.m. Saturday, 8th of October? Yeah, this is on the 8th of October, so this is just coming up in a couple of weeks. They're, they're, they're attempting to do something incredibly ambitious, which is to create a human chain uh, around Parliament in Westminster, including over the bridge and to the South Bank. And to do that, they estimate they're going to need uh, somewhere around 5,000 plus uh, people. So they're really calling on everybody to come out and support this. As you know, the situation uh, with uh, Julian Assange, WikiLeaks founder in uh, Belmarsh prison is pretty dire in terms of his health. Um, so this is a really serious and crucial time right now. He's waiting to be extradited uh, to the United States uh, for uh, for what? Well, under 170 something years for all these uh, trumped up indictments. Uh, for espionage and things like this, completely uh, ridiculous. It's sad and regrettable that the UK is basically uh, being used as a sort of way station uh, for the United States, uh, Airstrip One in a diplomatic sense. Um, but in, none, nonetheless, it's up to people uh, to sort of come out and show their support and show that they're, they're not going to uh, accept um, this type of treatment of a journalist um, in the 21st century. So they're calling on supporters and people who care about this issue to come out and join. So you can just check out their website there, don'textraditeassange.com for more information. You can see that URL for the human chain, but it looks like it's going to be a pretty important event. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. And uh, I'll also put this on screen. Uh, this is from uh, saveourrights.uk. Uh, were you arrested on November the 28th, 2020? Uh, want to sue the Metropolitan Police for unlawful arrest, join our class action. So uh, uh, they have set up a, a class action uh, lawsuit through a law firm for people that were arrested uh, or were uh, challenged on a bus, for example, on the way to the protest on the 28th of November. Uh, if you're arrested, detained or asked to provide your details, including on a coach under the coronavirus regulations during the lockdown protests on the 20th of November 2020 in central London, uh, then this may have been unlawful as it seems the regulations were not implemented correctly by the Metropolitan Police when policing the protests. Uh, so uh, the, the law firm concern is assisting. Uh, they're saying it'll only take 20 minutes to fill in the form. Anybody wants to uh, to find out about that, head over to uh, the Save Our Rights UK uh, uh, Twitter feed and you'll get uh, a link to the form. Um, okay, now, uh, <laughs> Uh, let's move on to uh, Liz Truss in the United Nations. Um, her speech uh, to the UN General Assembly yesterday was probably as boring as it gets in terms of delivery. But nonetheless, she had one or two, uh, shall we say, hypocritical or uh, not necessarily correct things to say. Let's have a listen to the first one here. Our strength as a nation comes from the strong foundations of freedom and democracy. Democracy gives people the right to choose their own path, and it evolves to reflect the aspirations of citizens. It unleashes enterprise, ideas, and opportunity, and it protects the freedoms that are at the very core of our humanity. By contrast, autocracies sow the seeds of their own demise by suppressing their citizens. They are fundamentally rigid and unable to adapt. Any short-term gains are eroded in the long-term because these societies stifle the aspiration and creativity that are vital to long-term growth. A country where artificial intelligence acts as judge and jury, where there are no human rights and no fundamental freedoms, is not the kind of place anybody truly wants to live. And it's not the kind of world that we want to build. So, Patrick, before I get your thoughts on this uh, difference between democracy and autocracy, uh, this last comment that she made, particularly the comment about uh, artificial intelligence and the justice system being not uh, the world that she wants to build. Well, a cursory search uh, of uh, news stories this year shows that it's exactly the kind of world that she wants to build and the kind of Britain that she wants to build. So here's Forbes. Uh, artificial intel intelligence handing out rough justice in the UK. Uh, the unregulated use of AI in the UK justice system is cre potentially creating miscarriages of justice, according to a new report from the House of Lords. Uh, here's uh, technology used in the justice system is outpacing scrutiny and regulation. That's the report if you want to 
uh, go and read it, uh, talking about AI in the justice system in the UK already. And uh, uh, it was Lord Levison that was uh, uh, absolutely uh, pushing forward with, for more and more technology to be used within the justice system. And it doesn't matter that it's only being used for uh, relatively uh, minor offences at the beginning. Um, as it grows and develops, uh, it will not no longer be minor offences. And so any suggestion for Liz Truss uh, that uh, uh, this is not the kind of world or the country that she wants to build is simply untrue. Uh, here we've got Pinson Mason's technology to become embedded in UK justice system by 2040, senior ju judge suggests, and this is master of the role, Sir, Jesse, Sir Geoffrey Voss, talking exactly about the use of AI as part of the justice system. Um, Patrick, I wonder if you've got any thoughts on that and, and also on what she was saying about uh, democracy and autocracy. Yeah, uh, on, on the AI question, I think uh, you're seeing, uh, we've documented this very well over the years, but um, a sort of tendency for government to uh, become very technological oriented. Um, so this is the technocracy. This is the blooming uh, technocracy of the 21st century. And when they talk about a post-democratic uh, West, um, is they're talking about the transition to a technocracy. That's definitely what is being sort of you know, what's gestating at the World Economic Forum uh, and some of these sort of high-flying uh, think tanks that Liz Truss and others uh, have attended and will continue to attend these types of talking shops. But more uh, pointedly is her words in her speech. And the UN General Assembly speech is very important to pay attention to because in it you'll see some of the seeds of what's to come. You remember Boris Johnson's speech there before the coronavirus pandemic when he was talking about um, uh, vaccines and uh, all these other sort of authoritarian, uh, this foreshadowing uh, from that speech, that uh, magnanimous speech that he did uh, at the UN General Assembly at the beginning of his premiership. Now she's talking about uh, suppressing citizens and how horrible this is and so-called autocracies and uh, stifling creativity. I can't think of anything more stifling uh, for the creativity of the nation uh, than for the uh, central government to be bearing down and running a censorship farm uh, by using legislation and all sorts of uh, instruments from the state. Uh, in order to clamp down on free speech, which they call disinformation. It's completely Orwellian, but this is exactly uh, what's happening with the online harms bill uh, and others. And unable to adapt, she said. Autocracies are unable to adapt. And if you look at the UK's position from the beginning, uh, doubling down on this proxy war in Ukraine, they're completely unable to adapt to realities on the ground, uh, and it, this is just one of the most spectacular losses uh, in NATO history. If you think that they've been pumping arms and money uh, into this basket case of a country in Ukraine uh, for the last uh, nine years, uh, look where it's got them. It's it's a disaster, quite frankly, uh, for the country. I mean, and I dare that the country, as we once knew it, um, is pretty much gone uh, by now. And uh, that's largely to, for the efforts of the United States and Britain at the forefront of pushing uh, this proxy war. Where they want to fight to the last Ukrainian. Yes. OK, well, let's uh, let's listen to another short clip from Liz uh, and this one. Uh, well, listen carefully. The UK is providing funding using the might of the city of London and our security capabilities to provide better alternatives than those offered by malign regimes. There's been a strength of collective purpose. We've met many times, spoken many times on the phone, and we've made things happen. The G7 and our like-minded partners should act as an economic NATO, collectively defending our prosperity. If the economy of a partner is being targeted by an aggressive regime, we should act to support them, all for one and one for all. So what she seems to be talking about there, Patrick, is creating an economic NATO, uh, effectively waging economic war on, well, whomever uh, they like. Now, they're talking about defense here. And of course, uh, if we consider NATO itself uh, and its uh, strategic concept, which was published uh, earlier this year, um, it was also talking about defense. Uh, but was it really? Because uh, 
what the government, the UK government said at the time was that the UK has played a key role in shaping the new uh, NATO strategic concept, which will be agreed at the Madrid. This was agreed at the Madrid summit. The strategy highlights the evolving and growing threats which the alliance faces and sets out how NATO can meet them uh, and keep our people safe. Uh, it went on to say that this builds on the work of the UK's integrated review published last year, which underscores the need to modernize our armed forces and develop UK and NATO defense uh, and security capabilities across land, sea, air and cyberspace and invest in new technologies. So uh, the UK absolutely fed uh, the, the doctrine from the uh, integrated review into the strategic concept and the strategic, strategic concept echoes many of the views and uh, positions of the uh, of the UK's integrated review and the defence doctrine for the UK. And we've got to remember that this, what's core to the UK's uh, defence doctrine is this concept of an of being taking an offensive posture rather than a defensive posture. So the words that they said were, were that uh, the integrated operating concept was to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity rather than responding to the actions of others. So that very clearly says they're heading towards an offensive uh, posture, uh, and particularly with respect to uh, information warfare uh, and uh, uh, cyber warfare and so on. Uh, but now, if we believe what uh, Liz Truss is saying at the General Assembly, we're heading in the same direction with respect to economic warfare. Yeah, that, that's probably the most... Sorry, apologies for that. Go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, that's uh, to, to wrap up um, economic interests uh, into a kind of NATO framework. She's, she's basically alluding to an Article 5 uh, for the economy. So anything that seems to be uh, against the economic interest, I mean, how exactly um, do you define that? So what Liz Truss is doing uh, in the great tradition of uh, all sort of uh, puppet dictators um, is basically throwing away um, any sort of multilateral uh, cooperation between countries. So this is this is really pushing the old model out the window and moving towards uh, a more sort of warlike model where you have a balkanized uh, a, a balkanized global economy and you have blocks of interest. So in, in this case, it'll be the UK uh, and the United States who will be US will be sanctioning people and sanctioning countries they don't like who are trading or allowing money to transfer. You saw. Uh, the Russian Mir system, uh, which the U.S. is pressuring countries like Turkey uh, to shut down, so there can't be any sort of commerce or transfer of payments uh, with the Russian Mir system with a country like Turkey and other U.S. allies or quasi allies. So that economic warfare is is going to be extended uh, pretty much indefinitely uh, on all these different fronts. So anything can be deemed an economic threat. I mean, how do you measure that? It just gives you an excuse to be pretty much bellicose right across the board and be threatening everybody. Uh, and so, you know, when Britain makes threats internationally or imposes sanctions internationally, it'll do it in tandem um, with the United States government. So that gives it a little bit of additional weight. So secondary sanctions, that, that's where this is headed, is secondary uh, sanctions, which normally not very popular uh, to do to your allies. You won't generally get cooperation uh, often, but now if they push a little harder, they just might. So what does that mean? You've got all these supine countries like Germany, for instance, or any of these EU countries that will basically just bowl over and, and roll over uh, for whatever is being uh, demanded uh, from Washington or London with regards to who you're allowed to trade with, who you're not allowed to trade with, where you're allowed to buy your oil or your energy from, who you're not allowed to buy oil and energy from. Look at a country like Hungary. What's this going to mean for them? down the road? Are they going to get sanctioned? Are they going to have all their assets frozen uh, in the city of London? Where, where does it end? And there's many, many other countries um, as well. So it looks like they're buckling down for a long protracted, uh, bifurcated uh, global economic war. Indeed. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to Ukraine then. So uh, what's going on in Ukraine? This is buzzing around the news. Everybody's talking about this latest uh, escalation uh, there's all sorts of talk about uh, Vladimir Putin uh, threatening uh, nuclear war. We'll get into some of the details of that. Is that actually what's happened? Um, not, not quite. But let's start with the big news. Uh, at least initially, there's been a massive prisoner swap um, here. And so 
the way this is being framed in the U.S. and the Western media is that uh, Ukraine has gotten the better end of this prisoner swap. This contains a lot of high-profile uh, individuals. Let's take a look at what this looks like in terms of who's been, uh, who's got who. So on one side you have Zelensky, and you have <laughs> there's Liz Truss. Uh, she's been a beneficiary. Uh, some of her uh, Truss's army have been liberated through this swap. And on the other side, you have Putin. So 215 total persons on the Ukrainian and British mercenary side. These are mostly Ukrainian soldiers and POWs. Let's take a look at who the main ones are. You've got the Azov Battalion. These are Nazis. So this is really important. Take a look at this because that shows you where the priorities are for the negotiation camp um, on the Ukrainian and NATO side. They really wanted the not to liberate these not lit self, you know, totally avowed Nazis uh, who were in the Azovstal plant, and Propanenko, Palomar, some of these high-profile social media uh, characters who were holed up under the Azovstal plant, the defenders of Mariupol, as they're called, or leaders from Mariupol, they're included in this. Plus, you've got um, armed forces of Ukraine POWs. Now, on the Russian side here, Viktor Medvedchuk. So this is a high-value uh, political a prisoner who was kept under house arrest. Um, he was uh, served first under the Leonid Kuchma government in Ukraine, and he's the leader of the opposition party platform for life. Uh, Putin is godfather to his daughter, and he was also featured in the Oliver Stone excellent documentary called Revealing Ukraine. That's Viktor Medvedchuk. So he's been included in this. And if you remember, this is who Aidan Aslan, the uh, wayward uh, British mercenary, uh, who was captured in Ukraine? He was. Uh, he went to YouTube demanding that uh, uh, the UK government consider swapping him for Ved, v Victor Medvedchuk, and people laughed at the time. So it wasn't exactly a like for like swap here. But look at this. This is incredible. That's potentially a future Ukrainian leader. Uh, when the dust settles and all this, we don't know where we'll be in a year or two, or three or four. And Victor Medvedchuk is one of those people, moderate types, that could uh, be although regarded as pro-Russian, but he could be a potential candidate for uh, leadership um, in Ukraine, a post-war Ukraine, or what's left of Ukraine, perhaps, anyway. Uh, but we move on here on the Ukrainian side. Yeah, lots of uh, POWs uh, from the Armed Forces of Ukraine. And then over on the Russian side, a number of pilots, Russian officers and servicemen. Uh, but look at the, it's very lopsided in terms of the totals here. So well, a lot of people are not happy about this on the Russian side. But uh, down to the British side, British mercenaries, Aidan Aslan, Sean Pinner, um, some very uh, questionable characters there. But this was brokered by Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia and uh, President Erdogan of Turkey. And so, for instance, Palomar, who's one of the Azov Battalion Nazi leaders from Mariupol, he's... He's going to part of the terms of his release is he has to stay uh, in situ, um, uh, serving at the pleasure of Erdogan, who he will be kept safe in a safe location, but has to stay there kind of under a country club house arrest type situation, I guess, in Turkey. So that's some of the terms of this swap. There's other backroom deals. You have to ask, what did Saudi Arabia get in return for this? There's so there's a three way negotiation. I'm sure Turkey and Saudi Arabia have got something out of this, although it's not clear yet what they got. So the other thing is there's also uh, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov. He's the leader of the Chechen uh, uh, forces and the Autonomous Republic of, of Chechnya. He's their sort of supreme commander. He's not happy um, at all about this. He's saying we, we completed the, uh, the exchange on Ukrainian terms. This is not right. Our fighters crushed the fascists in Mariupol drove them into Azovstal, smoked them out uh, of the basements, died, got wounded, and shell-shocked, and this is how uh, they're repaid. So he's not happy at all. He expressed this publicly uh, on his social media account. But the other interesting thing is, and the details of this are not forthcoming yet, but what you might find um, is that there was some financial uh, uh, things lifted on the Russian side. So there's a number of banks that could have been involved in this um, SPM bank, uh, St. Petersburg VEB bank. The details of this, uh, still we don't have all the information, but some sanctions or frozen assets, frozen Russian assets may have been unfrozen
for certain accounts, businesses, or individuals. So as yet, we don't have all the details for that. So that will be something, hopefully, that will be coming out um, in the in the next couple of days. So this so this is a really interesting swap. I don't know what your thoughts on this, Mike, are because of the Aiden Aslan situation. You know that it's, well, it's quite incredible. He he's gone up in the world. You know. Yeah, it is quite incredible. So, so Aidan Aslan, as you say, uh, and Sean Pinner, uh, John Harding, uh, Dylan Healy, and Andrew Hill, who's the the gent from Plymouth, uh, also. Uh, so, I think there were five uh, Brits out of the ten uh, sort of uh, POWs that were brokered as part of this Saudi Arabian deal. I haven't, uh, as you say, I haven't seen anything, Patrick, that, that gives any uh, indication as to what Saudi and Turkey got out of it. I think it's a very interesting development, though, uh, particularly because uh, at least two of those people were uh, found guilty in, well, you know, some would argue it wasn't a legitimate court, but nonetheless, they were found guilty in a court and sentenced to death. Uh, and I think at the time uh, when we were reporting this, you said they would probably end up uh, in a swap. Uh, well, that seems to be how it's turned out. Well, the, the Liz Truss, the new British Prime Minister, has kind of dodged a bullet here because, as we remember, she was uh, calling uh, for the international brigades to mobilize um, and go fight in the good fight in Ukraine, and then she sort of walked that back afterwards. But these people were already there, uh, many of them, these British mercenaries. But still, it's a huge embarrassment because she sort of endorsed, uh, you know, people to just basically go fight. Um, pick up arms and go fight in this proxy war. So it's not a good look for a prime minister. So she, I, I think it was within the British interest massively to make sure that there's a deal done and these potentially embarrassing um, uh, hang, hangnails, if you will, diplomatic hangnails uh, in these British characters who aren't the most savory of characters and uh, arguably have done some potentially horrific things uh, to people in the Donbass, for instance, um, that they be uh, rescued uh, in this deal. So it's it, it really Mike. This really speaks to you. Look, you know, so much effort and uh, resources, and who knows what Britain had to give up to save these very dubious characters. Okay, so that goes to show you the you know what this conflict is all about and the level that it's sunk to. That a country, a major NATO country, would have to sort of mobilize resources or give something up. Or, or allow some concessions to their sworn enemy to save these sort of ropey characters who um, are, are, are not quite, you know, war heroes as such, but they were just caught up um, in their sort of soldiers of fortune uh, uh, activities in this country. Before that, some of them were running around with the Kurds uh, in Syria for that sort of good fight. Um, so it really speaks to, to, to this, the level that things have generally sunk to. I think Personally, this is kind of shocking. Um, okay, well, let's uh, let's move on to what's going on in Russia itself. And, of course, the British media, absolutely full. Patrick, of headlines uh, like this in The Independent, Russia could draft up to one million soldiers to fight in Ukraine. And uh, today's headlines are, are claiming that there are uh, tens of miles. I think uh, one uh, report said 21-mile uh, tailbacks trying to get out of Russia into Georgia in order to avoid this draft uh, and, uh, and other reports saying that uh, similar, although not quite as significant because there's a, there's a visa required to get into Finland, but similar queues uh, to get into Finland as well. So what's going on? Well, th th this is the general uh, stories that got circulated very quickly um, in the Western media is that there's sort of you know, 1 million people are gonna be drafted. So in terms of information warfare, this was very effective. Um, by the Western media because it created a sort of panic. And in the English language media, that seeped back into Russian opposition media. And so Russia has this problem now. They have to basically unwind uh, the narrative that's been basically established by the West that uh, Putin's going to draft a million people. And so when you talk about general mobilization um, in Russia, uh, then there would be uh, what something akin to national service so you know any man uh, above the age of 27 or something like this and below a certain age would be considered a, poten a potential uh, reserve so they would be assigned to various units domestically like any national service but you have to declare war russia has to be at war so it was it was a special military operation um when it began 
This is the term they used uh, in late February 2022, and there are various legal reasons uh, for them using that uh, that banner uh, for the military intervention um, in Ukraine and Donbass. Okay, but the the reality is they haven't uh, d- declared war, so there isn't a general mobilization. But it's, they're certainly setting the scene for something akin to that. Um, and so the potential. So they have they have right now one million Russia's one million of potential active duty. Okay, um, within certain age limits and uh, certain profiles, potentially one million. Okay, so they don't need to do. Uh, a massive draft right now. However, if they declare war against Ukraine, then uh, there are pot- 2 million potential uh, reserves um, in the country. I'm not sure if that's an additional, t- I think that's an additional 2 million, but that would be general mobilization, i.e. draft, enlistment, um, national service. So d- so then the panic now, the, the European countries saying, oh, we'll accept draft dodgers, we won't accept draft dodgers. Probably they're not going to want to accept draft dodgers, but uh, even the Russian media is, is, is reporting on this because it's actually happening. But um, the how this started, if you go to RT, they sort of explain how this uh, rumor uh, cascaded here. The Kremlin brand's media claim of huge mobilization, a lie. This could be damage control. This could be actually a correct um, uh, assessment of it. And so look, look at the details of this. Um, Novaya uh, Gatseta Europe, a Russian language newspaper based in the EU, claimed that the figure was provided in an unpublished clause in the decree. And the paper cited unnamed sources in the Russian presidential administration. So that's basically, uh, you know, that's synonymous with fake news. Uh, and further from that, they go on to say Russian ministry, Sergei uh, Shugoy, uh, previously stated that the mobilization would involve around 300,000 reservists or just over 1% of Russians' full mobilization potential. So we're, they're talking about 3 million full mobilization potential, and that would be in the event of an all-out war I declared against NATO or whoever. Um, so again, the, what, what Russia is signaling here, and what's important is that uh, they mean business, um, and they're, they're ready to put it all on the table here. And the question is, is Europe, or is NATO willing to put it all on the table? And if you look at since this began, NATO's not prepared officially to sacrifice one life from the West um, to, to, to somehow bring down Russia. But they're willing to basically have the entire young male Ukrainian population cut down to almost nothing uh, in order to you know, achieve their uh, proxy war objectives uh, on this. So... That's that's where this stands um, here. So the, here's the question. This is the big question. So why is Russia announcing this now? What is actually in the works? Well, you have to join up this story with the story of the referendums. And there's the answer um, to your questions here. So Russia, and, and this is well known now, uh, September 23rd to the 27th um, are going to be referendums in the Donbass. Uh, 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 autonomous republics and Zaporizhia and Kherson regions. Okay, so this is multiple regions under Russian control. And ostensibly, these are very largely the populations identify um, as Russians. So what this means is that the, the Russia is going getting ready to deploy its armed forces into these territories after uh, refer- positive referendums to the duration. Okay, so this is basically a meltdown moment for the West, for NATO. And so they're screaming. They do not know what to do. Only, you know, NATO, West are really on the back foot here. Uh, and this could get potentially worse for them because once Russia moves in with full militarization and they deploy their air force properly and air defenses and things like this, then it's a totally different situation. Then it's a fortress uh, situation in these sort of areas. And they have been very conservative and have held back and been very uh, careful in the military operations to this point. And the West has been basically reporting that as, oh, Russia's running out of ammo and they're on the, the brink of losing any minute now. And it's just not, hasn't gone as well as Putin had 
hoped it would. You know, so this is the way the propaganda in the West is reporting what is a very deliberate and a steady and slow operation in Russia. And if you look at here, world leaders are all calling this sham referendums. So this is the talking point. The referendums are a sham. So you'll see this same word and this same talking point cascading through all the various governments and mainstream media in the West. But there's not much, Mike, that they can do about it. So this is the problem here. So that, that's what I think is going on. They're getting ready for a bigger mobilization in the former uh, provinces and territories of Ukraine. Yes, indeed. Now, let's just, uh, what I just want to do, Patrick, uh, is just have a look at the UK's response to this. So this was a, a, a video clip that they put out this morning uh, talking about uh, the referenda that are taking place. Um, and, well, you can see the kind of uh, uh, symbolism and so on that they're using. Uh, they're going to turn this into one new region of Russia. The Kremlin will claim that it's what local people want. Ukrainians are horrified uh, and so on. So you can see the type of, uh, of rhetoric. Uh, yesterday in the OSCE, uh, Neil Bush had this to say. Meanwhile, President Putin's proxies in the temporarily Russian-controlled territories of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson and uh, uh, Zaporizhia uh, oblast scramble to organize a sham referenda a pitiful charade. Uh, let's be clear, we will never recognize any Russian attempts to purportedly annex part of Ukraine's sovereignty. Uh, these illegitimate referenda will not alter our approach. We will continue to support uh, Ukraine's right to defend its territory. So that's what uh, Neil Bush had to say. Um, James Cleverly, on the other hand, uh, was in the Security Council yesterday, and he said this. We know what Vladimir Putin is doing. He is planning to fabricate the outcome of those referenda. He is planning to use that to annex sovereign Ukrainian territory. And he is planning to use it as a further pretext to escalate his aggression. That is what he plans to do. And we call on all countries to reject the charade and to refuse to recognize any results. And the main concern, Patrick, for, for uh, the uh, UK and the United States must be the fact that uh, uh, Russia has given some fairly stark warnings uh, that uh, nobody should be firing long-range long, weapons into uh, Russian territory. And of course, uh, if there are referenda held and the people vote to join the Russian Federation, uh, then the Donetsk uh, uh, and Luhansk and these other regions effectively become Russian territory. At that point, should the Ukrainians fire uh, a Western uh, weapon into those areas, that is, uh, as you say, a major escalation. It's not only that, uh, uh, Russia is warned uh, if they do, um, then they're going to respond with overwhelming force. Okay, so it, th this is been, and it's going to be a speech Putin tomorrow, and I think it's on the 24th or today. It will be more likely that, uh, later this afternoon, perhaps, but within 24 hours. It was meant to happen yesterday, and for some reason it was delayed. So this is really interesting. I think there's a lot of backroom diplomacy, the hotlines, um, are, are being you know used between these countries. So there's stuff going on. You, what's so this is this is the major moment here. This is where the, the, the this conflict and the the powers of this and the, the outcomes are, are tilting right now. And who it tilts in favor of depends on what happens in the next couple of days. And so this is also a very dangerous time as well. But so I, I don't think, I, um, you know, with Crimea, Russia had, um, the, they had the, and the people of Crimea had the advantage of the element of surprise. The West wasn't uh, expecting, they didn't have time to prepare a public relations campaign, a counter-propaganda or a propaganda campaign um, to counter the referendum in Crimea. And it went off. Was a huge uh, margin. It was ninety-five percent voted in twenty fourteen to join the Russian Federation. So, if you have similar results here, it's going to be decried as a sham, as a fake 
uh, display of fake democracy and an annexation, etc. But that's basically the same argument that the West has used uh, to delegitimize uh, Crimea's um, leaving the Ukraine and joining the Russian Federation. And the, at, at all points, the British, the Americans, they've canceled the people in these regions. They don't want to know what the people think. They haven't sent any news crews to go interview them. This is CBS, ABC has not gone down to interview if the people want to join the Russian Federation or not. They'll probably find some people that don't uh, in Kiev or Lviv and interview them or people in Washington or whatever. Um, but so th- this is the problem. So there, there's no agency. They've been robbed of their agency. So they don't care about referendums or direct democracy. Uh, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, look at what else James cleverly said, because, I mean, far be it to me to suggest that he would not be speaking the truth. Uh, but let's uh, have a look at this. He went on during that speech to say, uh, President Putin's war has spread hardship and food insecurity across the globe, uh, plunging millions of the world's most vulnerable into hunger and famine. Uh, and once again, as we've seen here today, Russia has sought to deny responsibility. It has tried to lay the blame on those who have rightly imposed sanctions on President Putin's regime in response to his illegal actions. Uh, to be clear, we are not sanctioning food, is what Cleverly said. So let me repeat that. To be clear, we are not sanctioning food. It is Russia's actions that are preventing food and fertilizer from getting to developing countries. Well, Mr. Cleverly, unfortunately, that's not what the African Union said, as reported in the Wall Street Journal and many other places earlier in the year. This is May 31st. Russia's swift sanctions impeding food payments, Africa Union tells EU. And so it's all very well for somebody to, uh, to try to divert attention onto a particular phrase, we are not sanctioning food, uh, Patrick. But what they have been doing is very much sanctioning uh, the ability to pay for food, and therefore that has, without question, disrupted uh, the flows of food from Russia into uh, developing countries. Uh, Cle- Cleverly's comments are totally disingenuous and could probably outright lie. Um, they don't represent the truth of the situation at all. There's a lot of sanctioning and disruption on the, like you said, on the financial transaction side, plus fertilizer and other uh, ingredients for fertilizer um, have had difficulty coming to market. So this idea that Russia is causing famine is a complete outright lie. So it's sad that uh, diplomats during this really crucial time have chosen, rather than address the actual substance of the issue, have just used it to sort of, you know, use as a bully pulpit and carry on with the uh, Russia, Russia, Russia narrative. It's very sad. And quite frankly, it should, it, People should uh, really reject it at this time because we need truth from our leaders at this point. We don't need them basically punting narratives like they've been doing for the last eight months. Um, Okay, so let's uh, move on, Patrick, then to the potential for nuclear. This is what everybody's talking right now, the nuclear threat here. So what what is going on here? There's there's a lot of uh, talk that Putin has threatened nuclear action uh, we don't want to get too much into the details of the Putin speech, but let's look at where this is coming from and what it means. This is this is remember this is coming on the back of this. So for the last six months, we've had this nonstop um, uh, talk about what Russia would do if it's backed into a corner. And just a couple of weeks ago, here September twelfth, Russia suffers stunning defeat in Kharkiv. It wasn't a stunning defeat. Um, in fact, at the same time of that sort of counteroffensive by Kiev. It's not a big counteroffensive. It's more like Russia withdrew from a couple of strategic areas, uh, but they had an absolute rout in Kherson in the south. But nobody's talking about that. So this, and the, but they've been building up this narrative that Russia's basically, you know, losing. And here's Foreign Policy magazine: Ukraine's 1777 moment. They're they're likening uh, the uh, counteroffensive in Kharkiv to the the Battle of Saratoga with the U.S. revolution against the British. I mean, this is the sort of thing that's going on in the West. So what is this? This is just setting up a narrative is what it is. So here, Joe Biden gave a really consequential uh, interview on 60 Minutes, and uh, it was full of gaffes and huge problems. But I, I took this particular clip out because you'll see the continuation of this narrative of who, what will Putin do when he feels like he's losing? He'd be like a, a cornered rat. He's potentially going to do what? Let's listen to this. 
After the horrors of seven months of war, President Biden has called Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal. It has been barbaric what he's done. His attacks on civilian, everything from civilian hospitals to, to you know, people's old age homes to neighborhoods where just ordinary people live. Schools. In schools, it's, it's just outrageous. And uh, um, so the, the price Ukrainian people are paying for this war is extremely high, but we're going to stay with them as long as they need our help. You're already north of $15 billion in terms right. of those commitments. How far do you go? As long as it takes. Ironclad commitment. Yes. As Ukraine succeeds on the battlefield, Vladimir Putin is becoming embarrassed and pushed into a corner. And I wonder, Mr. President, what you would say to him if he is considering using chemical or tactical nuclear weapons. Don't. 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 It will change the face of war unlike anything since World War II. And the consequences of that would be what? I'm what would the U.S. response be? You think I would tell you if I knew exactly what it would be? Of course I'm not going to tell you. It'll be consequential. They'll become more of a pariah in the world than they ever have been. And depending on the extent of what they do, will determine what response would occur. <laughs> so he's saying as long as it takes, you know, as long as you, until when Ukraine's um, destroyed people's old age homes. I didn't know they had nursing homes in Ukraine, but apparently Putin's been targeting those. The U.S. president has no uh, credibility at all. But look at the t look at the way the narrative is spun, that Putin's backed into a corner and he'll use tactical nuclear weapons. This accusation makes absolutely no sense. But you notice how they've been banging on about this for months and months that he first it was going to be he's going to use chemical weapons. Uh, if he feels like he's backed into a corner and now it's tactical nukes. This has basically been repeated for months on every single U.S. media outlet. So they've conditioned the Western public to believe that this is actually a viable scenario and this is somehow credible analysis. It makes zero sense. Russia uh, uh, has nothing to benefit because con conventionally they, they outmatch Ukraine to, to a huge magnitude. So this is part of the problem with the disinformation and propaganda effort from the US, UK and NATO propagandizing themselves and the public to believe all these myths about what Russia is and what Russia isn't. So totally dishonest analysis here. And this is this is immediately after Biden's speech. You have another round of this. U.S. has sent private warnings to Russia against using nuclear weapons. Why on earth would you want to use nuclear weapons when you're winning big? You're winning big. They've got 30 percent uh, of U former Ukrainian territory under sort of autonomous governance right now in these various regions, and that's 70% of Ukraine's GDP. So it, this could end today, and this is a huge victory for Donbass, for these uh, republics, and for Russia. But it's being uh, uh, illustrated as something completely different. And there's just more of this here. Uh, a now this is, they're saying, a decision tree for Biden if Putin goes nuclear. So they've got the football out, DEFCON uh, protocols. They're talking about this now. Uh, this week in the United States is the Washington Post here. Do, uh, and here's The Economist, which is basically a deep state outlet. Uh, do Russia's military setbacks increase the risk of nuclear conflict? So Russia's losing. Russia's backed into a corner. You see how they're conditioning the West. And here, this is using uh, Soviet imagery. Is Russia increasingly likely to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? This is the conversation here. Um, so you can see the narrative that's being spun. And here we go back again. This was from a couple months ago. Putin won't use a nuke. Chemical weapons, maybe. Why on earth would Russia use chemical weapons? We're totally detached from reality after being gaslit for the last decade over Syria, over Novichok, and now with this. So we're being completely misled by our media. But what are they setting up here? This is right now is very dangerous because uh, the, the probability of a staged provocation or a false flag right now is at a greater point than ever. This is the optimum conditions. If somebody who who knows who, a third party actor 
or a, a NATO actor uh, was to detonate a tactical nuclear weapon somewhere in Ukraine, the world and the global community would immediately blame Russia without any hesitation. And, and for all intents and purposes, in the minds of the international community, it will be Russia who did it. And yeah. the justification for that, the, the logic for that will be because, well, that's because Putin was backed into a corner. So this is where propaganda gets very dangerous and where this thing could escalate into places that, quite frankly, none of us would really want to go. Um, and so that would be to demonize Russia. As Biden said, they're, they're setting up the narrative. I think we should be very, very concerned that this is a distinct possibility. Yes. OK, thank you for that. Now, let's uh, let's move on to this. Uh, and this is uh, the hybrid COE website. What's this all about? Well, this is the European Centre for uh, Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats. And uh, the key part of this is disinformation, in inverted commas. Um, so uh, this is one of these uh, so-called autonomous institutions, uh, which has been created uh, sort of as a hive off from NATO, as you'll see in a second. Uh, well, they were tweeting out uh, um, a couple of days ago that they have just uh, held um, a second countering disinformation war game. It was held in Riga in Latvia uh, and uh, national teams were practicing countering malicious disinformation disseminated by a red cell simulating Russia and China uh, and their proxies in a closed information environment, according to the tweet. Uh, and uh, well, the tweet went on to offer special thanks to these two organizations, EU versus Disinfo uh, and Stratcom COE, which is a NATO offshoot, the NATO Strategic Communications Center of Excellence for helping them out with that. Um, so uh, why are we uh, particularly um, uh, interested in this? Well. One of the participants uh, was this organization that we've featured quite a bit uh, on the program. This is Ukraine's uh, Center for Countering Disinformation uh, and their website, which contains the so-called hit list of journalists that they would like to see liquidated. And uh, certainly uh, uh, whenever anybody is, uh, they end up with a nice liquidated stamp on their image on this website. It's quite unpleasant. Um, so they have, uh, they're have they very proud to have taken part in this countering disinformation war game. Um, and uh, they said uh, that uh, they had learned about the experience of the Czech Republic, Turkey, Slovakia, Finland, Moldova, and Netherlands, as well as other NATO and EU countries in countering uh, Russian and Chinese disinformation. And they discussed ways of cooperation and joint action uh, algorithms uh, in the context of implementation of joint measures to counter current and project threats to national security and national interests. Uh, Patrick, is it not somewhat reprehensible that not only are we funding this uh, organization with their kill list, uh, we're inviting them to take part in NATO-supported and NATO-backed uh, wargaming on disinformation, um, and uh, no criticism for the fact that they're calling for the deaths of journalists? Yeah, not only uh, calling for the deaths of journalists, but also putting even uh, political uh, figures um, on there as well. Um, it's it's beyond reprehensible, it's, you know, shameful. But it just speaks to the level that uh, a lot of these uh, po political operatives and people are, you know, so-called journalists in the West, the the level they're operating on, and uh, totally devoid of any kind of principles, ethics, or morals themselves, um, but they're sort of still wagging the finger uh, at Russia for everything that's uh, that they're allegedly doing. Um, if you look at this, 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 what we've become in the West through through this is just uh, a really a regrettable, it's, it's a regrettable I think hopefully that we'll be able to look back on this, reflect on it, um, if there's any, you know, form or change, change in power uh, where this is no longer seen as acceptable. Um, but this is totally acceptable right now, sadly. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, look, let's end with, uh, with heading back to the United States. Uh, and, uh, well, January the 6th continues to be an issue. Yeah, well, this, this is really ramping up right now. Uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI are going full steam still. Uh, the Democratic Party and the January 6th committee. This has huge implications for the average American, and we'll show you why 
Um, so they're they're absolutely pursuing people. And this there's been a massive breakthrough on this story. So an FBI whistleblower, this is a member of a SWAT team uh, here who's basically been absolutely uh, you know hammered by uh, the FBI for blowing the whistle. Let's take a look at this. Uh, the the allegations by FBI Special Agent Steve Friend. He's now a whistleblower. He complained to the D.C. field office that the office was cooking the books to exaggerate the threat of domestic terrorism and using overzealous January 6th investigation to harass conservative Americans and violate their constitutional rights. So Friend is 37, a well-respected 12-year veteran of the FBI and SWAT teams. He was suspended on Monday, stripped of his gun and his badge, escorted out by the field office in Daytona Beach, Florida after complaining to his supervisors about these violations. And what were the violations? Friend has declared, he was declared absent without leave last month for refusing to participate in SWAT raids that he believed uh, violated FBI policy and were used uh, excessive force against uh, January 6th subjects. And we'll show you who these subjects could or couldn't be who are accused of basically misdemeanor uh, offenses here. And so he told his immediate supervisor that he believed that the raid uh, and the investigation process leading up to it um, violated subjects' rights under the Sixth Amendment to a fair trial and the Eighth Amendment, uh, a right against cruel and unusual uh, punishment here. So there's some media calling him a hero. Obviously, others are not even reporting this, but this is massive. So let's take a look at uh, the, what's the, the major takeaways here. This is Steve Friend there. So the D.C. field office <clears throat> manipulated uh, FBI case management protocols, farming out January 6th cases to field offices across the country to create the false impression that right-wing domestic extremism was a widespread national problem. And it, it goes beyond the black swan event of January 6th, 2021 itself. And the FBI uh, goes on to say the FBI domestic terrorism cases are being opened on innocent American citizens who were nowhere near the Capitol on January 6th, based on anonymous tips to the FBI hotline or from Facebook spying on their messages. And they go on, the FBI's post facto designated uh, the, a grassy area around the Capitol on January 6th is a so-called restricted zone, therefore widening the net of prosecutions. Unbelievable. And here, uh, the FBI intends to prosecute everyone, even peripherally associated with January 6th, in another wave of investigations and so forth so uh, for investigation and arrest. So this is a major violation of constitutional rights. And finally, the FBI agents have been dispatched to conduct surveillance and knock on people's doors, including people who had not been in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021, or who had been to the Trump rally that day but did not go inside the Capitol. This is political policing by the nation's top law enforcement agency. And this has a lot of people very worried about the state of the FBI being used as basically an attack vehicle for the right now, the Democratic administration in the White House ahead of the midterm elections in the next presidential election 2024. Here's another whistleblower that's come forward as well. This whistleblower basically blew the whistle that the FBI were using uh, counterterrorism uh, protocols under the Patriot Act in order to target parents at school board meetings who were protesting uh, uh, critical race theory being taught in schools or possibly the uh, gender fluidity or the trans agenda, uh, whatever, in schools. So this type of activity by parents, the FBI have used counterterrorism uh, labeling to, in order to open up files on these parents. It's unbelievable. Here's the whistleblower. I think this country broke on, on January 6th in so many different ways. Um, it's a turning point. The FBI has bought in 100% to the hype of January 6th. They have said it's the biggest investigation they've ever done, bigger than 9-11. To me, yeah. that's incredible. Said that, yeah. I got the leads that came out of those cases, okay? The days afterwards, I was actually on leave on the day of, and I had friends that were gonna go down there. Current agents, active duty, you know, guys that were carrying the badge and the gun, they were going to go down to the rallies and for just logistical reasons, didn't make it. They were able to retire safely, probably just because of that mishap, because otherwise they would have been under investigation as far as I could tell. 
And I know that there are friends in my group. Even though they were exercising got, their First Amendment right. I know two guys that have been suspended without pay. Wow. Their security clearance revoked for showing up to listen to the President of the United no States No criminal speak. activity whatsoever. None. And the allegation is absurd that they were in, in, engaging in some sort of like um, obstruction of the uh, federal proceeding or that they had you know, stopped a police officer in the performance of his duties. They didn't even see any police officers. They saw Secret Service guys at the obelisk, or at the ellipse rather, when they went through the magnetometers. That was it. And, and these are people I trust. I mean, I've looked them in the eye, I've sized them up, and we talked about it. I said, are you sure you didn't get anything else? And they said, the minute the tear gas started coming up and we saw vans of Antifa guys coming out and guys in black clothes, I went like, this is not what we're part of here. We're gonna go home. We've seen the, the circus. It's definitely weird, but they were on the edge of it like eating a sandwich. When, things, when the doors were breached, supposedly, and they were out. And so these are good people. These are good human beings that you know, signed up, um, and they've been, they've been named in, to the director. You know, uh, they've been redacted in public when um, Representative Jordan put his pieces out. But you know, they're, they're, the FBI is aware who these people are, and they know what they did to them. And they did the same thing to me and a number of others. Pretty incredible, Mike. Um, th th this is where things have escalated with, and there's people now calling to defund the FBI. Um, sort on the on the conservative side, certainly that was Dan Bongino uh, interviewing Kyle uh, Seraphim, this this other FBI whistleblower. But this 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 is hard to ignore, uh, and it's kind of disturbing. There, you know, if it depends what the result of the election is in the next month. Well, that, that's what it, I was going to ask you, Patrick, just very briefly. I mean, what, what effect is this? Is this becoming a talking point? Will it have an effect on the midterms? I don't think this is going to have the, this late, these two latest developments. And there's more coming, by the way. There's more whistleblowers. Um, I don't think this is going to have any big impact uh, on the voting either way. Um, but what it is going to do is if it does, if the, if the Congress does flip to Republicans, um, you're going to see some major congressional hearings, and they're going to drag the Christopher Ray and the FBI brass in front of a in front of a congressional committee, and they're going to have to answer about so many things, um, not just this, but going to the other sort of politicized uh, raids and things like that. And the DOJ is really going to be under the gun, Merrick Garland, Biden's uh, attorney general, who's it's become p totally politicized. The FBI or uh, Dan Bongino said they're acting as bouncers for the Democratic Party ahead of elections. This is, this is a really uh, bad situation um, in, in, in U.S. political history. And uh, it's, it's, you know, the FBI was very politicized and in the 1960s under the, the latter days of J. Edgar Hoover, nobody, once, nobody thought those days would return. We thought we were past that. And it looks like we're, we're very much in that same frame right now. So yeah. this is really disturbing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Uh, that's all we've got for you today um, because our time's up. So uh, thanks to Patrick for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for a little bit of extra uh, if you're on the main UK column live stream. But otherwise, uh, we'll see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend. See you then. Bye-bye.